Welcome to the Bonner Private Research Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Bowman. Each week, we bring you exclusive conversations with members of Bill Bonner's private research team, as well as some special guests we'll meet along the way. We're trying to connect the dots, from high finance to lowly politics, private investments to public follies, from Wall Street to Main Street, at home and on the road. We're into sound money, personal freedom, classical books, and great wines. Not always in that order. So join me and the rest of the Bonner Private Research team as we pack our bags and follow the money. You've heard it all before, dear listener. Dear, patient, long-suffering listener. Every election cycle around this time, honest, well-intentioned citizens are invited to dirty their hands in the fundamentally dishonest and corrupted political process of electing their next dear leader. We are invited to choose between the lesser of two evils, as it's sometimes put, to hold our nose and cast a vote for Tweedledee or Tweedledum. What we're not told, of course, is that the winner of every election is the same. It's the government. No, it's not left versus right. It's producers versus parasites, insiders versus outsiders, voluntarists versus statists, and win-win advocates versus those who would like to see you and yours on the losing end. And so with each and every passing election, more power accrues to the inner beltway grifters, the swamp creatures, the parasites and lobbyists and special interest hangers-on, who each and all are looking to get their fangs into the public pie. And still we're implored, mostly by those same politicians and their celebrity handmaids, to vote in what they tell us must surely be the most important election of our lifetimes. The future of the country is at stake, they say, with area, glimmer of shame on their face. We're told that democracy itself hangs in the balance, whatever that means. But let us remember that it was the ancient Athenians who gave the world democracy in the first place, right before they put Socrates, perhaps their greatest and most beloved thinker, to death, and did so by majority vote. Perhaps that's why Plato, Socrates' long-serving student, predicted that all democracies must eventually end in tyranny a prognostication that enjoys a rather robust historical record, I might add, from the ancient world right through to the modern one. So much for the wisdom of the masses and the collective intelligence of the mob. Of course, the will of the majority is no substitute for truth, any more than popular opinion is a reliable gauge for taste or virtue or justice or anything else really worth your pursuing. And yet the show goes on, bread and circuses being what they are. We're recording this podcast somewhere in the middle of the presidential debates in the weeks leading up to the November general election. And what a show they've been. Distraction, sleight of hand, press the digitation, the likes of which would make David Blaine himself blush. To most Americans, the debates probably more closely resemble a cafeteria food fight than the gentlemanly linguistic combat of two noble statesmen, duking it out in the time-honored tradition of well-crafted rhetoric and pristine logic. Indeed, what seems important here is more what the candidates are not saying than what they are. 
what they're hiding in plain sight, in other words. As Bill Bonner wrote in one of his recent Diary of a Rogue Economist musings, and here I quote, The federal government now owes $27 trillion that it can't pay. The country as a whole, including the private sector, owes $80 trillion that it can't pay. And the government has promised America's 76 million baby boomers and others $210 trillion in unfunded entitlements, pension, medical, and social security benefits that can't be paid either. End quote. So who is going to pay for these benefits and programs of sorts? That goes, of course, unsaid, as per usual. Elections, after all, are about making promises, not delivering on them. That, we're told, is for another day. Perhaps that's the reason H.L. Mencken once called elections, all elections, a kind of advanced auction on stolen goods. But rather than address these and other pressing concerns, the candidates are content to bandy about soundbite one-liners in the quest to nail their opponent in some kind of gotcha moment. The real questions, those threats to your financial, liberty, and individual security, these are conveniently left off the debate table. But just because politicians are ignoring such subjects, it doesn't mean that you should too. So, to that end, I recently spoke with Dan Denning. It doesn't matter who wins on November 3rd. There are two sides of the same coin, and at least from our point of view, looking at the quality and the soundness of the monetary system and the long-term effect of believing that you can get something for nothing by borrowing it from the future. Both parties are committed to national suicide. They're just doing it at different paces. Dan is the co-author, along with Bill Bonner, of the Bonner-Denning letter. And in a bit of a free-ranging discussion, we spoke about what he sees as the unavoidable trajectory for the United States why the election probably doesn't matter in the way you're being told it does, and why a resurgence in meddlesome Marxist ideology poses a clear and present threat to your safety and well-being. All that and plenty more we cover in my conversation with Dan Denning up after the break. So uh, you've been watching the vice presidential presidential debates i know you you did you rush back from your holiday to get the popcorn ready and <laughs> curtail your life around the debates no it, it it was completely accidental that i stumbled on the channel i was actually watching a baseball game and then i um i saw it and typically the vice presidential debates are you know they're a little more civil boring really mm. and they don't move the needle it doesn't really change anyone's mind but but the pundits always talk about why can't the presidential debates be this way? Why can't they be civil and informed and policy driven? And it was none of those things, you know, it, it was more posturing. And I thought what was notable is what, what wasn't discussed. The two things that weren't discussed were the $700 billion annual defense budget and the continued deployment of Americans in Afghanistan 19 years after 9-11 and the $27 trillion national debt these are these are trifling de- trifling details surely 26 trillion dollars here or there <laughs> <laughs> well apparently these these mega indicators of the health of our country and our politics are uh, not relevant to a discussion of who's going to be president for the next four years so 
as Bill said on the uh, State of the World podcast that he and I recorded last week or two weeks ago, it doesn't matter who wins on November 3rd. There are two sides of the same coin. And at least from our point of view, looking at the quality of, and the soundness of the monetary system and the long-term effect of believing that you can get something for nothing by borrowing it from the future. Both parties are committed to national suicide. They're just doing it at different paces. So uh, it was interesting to watch, but um, you know, anyone who watches those and hasn't made their mind up mm. is a moron. <laughs> but uh, uh, whether they make their mind up for candidate A or candidate B, you think it's a, the destiny is a foregone conclusion for the Republic at this stage? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I mean it's just a, it's a degree of, of speed of the road to 30 trillion uh, for debt and really annual deficits of three to five trillion. You know, Congress and the president were quite cynical about not doing another stimulus package during the end of the last fiscal year. Because if they, whether it's 1.2 or three or whatever they end up agreeing on, that would have pushed the debt closer to five trillion. And the, you know, the optics of that are, People are like, well, that seems like a lot of money. Five trillion is, <laughs> seems like a, a big deficit, even in this day and age of of big numbers. So they just waited until the beginning of the new fiscal year, and they'll add that bill to it. But the idea that uh that they're that we've gotten to the point where one point two trillion dollars is described as a skinny stimulus package, as if it was the small end of the scale. It's the diet version of of stimulus. Yeah, it's crazy, Joel. I mean, it's and this is just money. You have to wonder what the big gulp version looks like. Five. You know, yeah. it, it reminds me of a guy that uh, who spoke at one of our conferences in Australia back in, I think it was two thousand and uh, maybe thirteen. I can't remember. No, it was it was actually earlier than that. Anyway, Richard Duncan um, had this idea of creditism, creditism, and his his belief was that. In a world with this much debt, the only balance sheet capable of taking on enough new debt to grow out of the debt was a sovereign. And what the sovereign needed to do, whether it was the United States, the UK, Australia, Japan, is create a trillion dollar green energy program, create a $2 trillion infrastructure program, create uh you know trillions of dollars in kind of depression era state driven quote unquote enterprise and that would be the only thing to save the monetary system from collapse because you know in a debt-based money system you need constant credit growth to prevent the money supply from shrinking and i just asked him point blank i said that's not creditism that's inflationism that's inflationism. That's creating money ex nihilo and then saying that it produces something. But that's where we are now. I, Richard was right about that. Mm -hmm. that. That's that was where the discussion has evolved to. So that in both parties probably would agree with that now. So in the meantime, as investors, there's 31 trillion dollars in negative yielding government or negative yielding debt. A lot of it's government debt. But if if people have to pay you 
when they bar when they invest, then why wouldn't governments just spend as much as as they could? Ad infinite, yeah, yeah. We're 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 really on the threshold of something um, unprecedented, and the experiment up until now has been uh, mostly with monetary policy, but now it's going to be a fiscal policy discussion. And that has huge implications for investors in terms of how stocks are gonna behave, how, how gold and property and real assets, tangible assets will behave in a world where 2% inflation is, is more than acceptable. So mm. we'll, you know, there's a lot to discuss in the next, when we do our end of the year roundup, we'll look again at our asset allocations and rebalance them. We don't rebalance them based necessarily on performance because because um, it's not that type of strategy. But you know, the last time we looked at the strategy, we increased the allocation to cash to forty percent. And in a world of creditism with thirty trillion dollars in government debt, you'd start to be concerned about having too much cash. So that's where the discussion is going to go. And so uh, the, uh, the question always comes back to, you know, when we talk about these big macro ideas uh, about what the individual person can do, what the individual investor can do to kind of avoid, you know, some massive fallout that wipes out, you know, all their savings, their, their retirement, their, uh, their future, essentially. Um, but what do you, I mean, do you see no matter which way the election goes, people are going to be fronted with, with the same dilemma, um, or is is there a you know a, even a slightly preferable outcome? Well, in a bear market, your goal is to not lose your capital, but that's an inherently defensive strategy, and that's probably not the mindset most people have right now. I think people are still, at least institutional money managers, are in um, profit maximization strategy. And, and when the Federal Reserve effectively says that they have your back, then uh, that's rational to be that way. But I think there are, two, there are two immediate threats to that, as in this month or next month. The first is the Fed has said now that it will leave rates low indefinitely, but that is now the role of Congress to spend money. And that without that stimulation, the Fed described GDP growth as rapid and the recovery as rapid in their minutes from the September meeting. But they said without that further stimulus, then GDP growth would fall. And of course, that ought to, it really trickles up. But if you were following it back causally, you'd say, well, that's because businesses aren't going to have a lot of earnings. If people who don't have jobs aren't spending money, they don't have. It's kind of absurd. The Fed's prediction of the economy now depends on Congress giving people money to spend. Yeah, it sounds a lot like a like an addiction problem, doesn't it? <laughs> it's central planning, and uh, it's just a really bizarre state of affairs that's come to pass. But there's so there's that issue of uh, how the economy is going to perform without more stimulus and how it might perform if there's further shutdowns in the fall because state local governments continue to, to really put the clamps on restaurants, hospitality industry, travel. The other factor, which I think is interesting and I've been wrong about it to be fair for a while now is there may be finally some regulatory pushback against the technology companies. So there was some mm. stories about it yesterday that 
in a democratically controlled Congress with a democratic president than the, um, you know, monopoly charges against big tech might, might stick mm-hmm. and you might see them broken up. Now this is interesting because, you know, big tech companies are huge donors politically. Typically to the democratic party. Is that fair or? I think they spread their money pretty uh, evenly, to be honest, is a way of hedging their bets. But, but, um, you know, Silicon Valley, uh, is, you know, it's in California and it used yeah. to lean libertarian at the beginning of the tech in, you know, revolution. But now these companies are very aligned with big government and mm-hmm. even aligned with the deep state. So there's an interesting tension there between the government needing the services of Amazon and wanting to use the, the tracking of Facebook, um, uh, and then wanting to regulate those companies because they think that they're bad for our politics or they negatively influence political outcomes or they're vehicles for foreign governments to influence our election. Mm. So it's interesting because they seem to have a, they seem to at least present a front of being, you know, very kind of progressive and woke ish, you know, on that sort of end of the, um, of the political spectrum. But I guess there, I guess that their main ism is statism uh, in, in the sense that they're essentially tools of the Fed, or at least tools of the Fed in waiting, the Feds, rather. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think, you know, these are the companies that are producing the infrastructure and hardware of the surveillance state, mm-hmm. and also the software. So for example, Palantir, did it go public last week while I was on vacation, or did, did it IPO, Peter Thiel's company? You know, it's the company that produced the predictive crime software that was mm-hmm. used in Los Angeles. You know, that, that's the other part of the discussion, which I, you know, our readers are concerned about that because these are two sides of the same coin, economic liberty and political liberty. And suddenly, partly because of COVID, they're under attack in a way with a ferocity and a rapidity that's, that I've never seen before in, in my life. And I think people have less time than they would like to believe to do something about that. Mm. And I don't mean from a policy point of view, like you brought up, I don't think from a policy point of view, there is anything that individuals can do. Congress will regulate with a very light touch and the powers that they've given the intelligence agencies or that the intelligence agencies have taken for their own are, are here for good, whether we like it or not. So really you've, you've got to, Bill and I talked about this last week as well, Part of our strategy, which I would describe as a total wealth strategy, is not just making sure your money is safe and mobile, but that you're where you want to be physically. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> just We talked about it last time. Mm-hmm. I saw a story yesterday about Australia and Singapore and the UK uh, working with the airlines to establish biometric passports so that people could safely travel if they you know, passed a test for the virus or if, if they could prove that they had been vaccinated. So, you know, all of that stuff is coming yeah. sooner rather than later. So part of what we're discussing is be where you want to be, then get your money straight as well. Yeah. That, it seems to have been such a, uh, such a Trojan horse, this, this virus for importing all of, I think you call them the, the authoritarian impulses, but all those kind of latent uh, impulses that just kind of, 
bubble under the surface of the state all the time and are always kind of just laying dormant. Um, now they're able to just see their full expression. And actually, I, I saw a, small, a story this morning on the subject of Australia that they're not opening or not opening the borders either way, uh, either for tourists visiting Australia or for Australians being Australians being able to leave and visit other countries. They're not expecting to do that until late 2021, which is is just kind of insane. I mean, this is you know that it, it really now is kind of like a penal colony. It's gone back to its beginning, where it's just a big jail. No one can leave. No one can get in. No one can get out. And it's interesting to to see. A concurrent story that ran, uh, and I'm, you would have seen this as well, which is that Australia's passport is now declared, you know, the greatest passport in the world as far as visa-free travel to, you know, 175 countries or whatever it is. But it, it really underscores the idea that, that a passport is not a permission slip. It's a document of, of control. That it doesn't matter if you have the best passport in the world if the borders are closed and you can't get out and go anywhere. <laughs> it's kind of useless. Yeah. But, but it seems like that's what's coming. And it seems like what, what I'm most shocked about is that people seem to just be, just be taking it in this supine posture. Um, that's as politely as I can put it. But, <laughs> but it seems like not only are they just accepting these sort of gross interferences into their daily life, but in many cases, because they're so fearful of, you know, of coronavirus, for example, they're they're actually inviting these interferences in and welcoming them with open arms. I mean, it's the ultimate in political Stockholm syndrome, uh, worshiping your captor. Yeah, it's, you know, there's an analog too for financial markets because there's a, I think a natural behavioral disposition to safety as you get mm -hmm. older. So, you know, I go mountain biking in Utah, but I take a lot less risk at 47 than I did at 27. So, you know, there's more at stake or you just know a little bit more or you just become more risk averse. Falling off just hurts more when you get older. <laughs> just more pain involved. Yeah. <laughs> we don't, you know, people, I prefer to avoid the pain more than I want the right. thrill. And yeah. that, that, there's an analog that, that uh, you know, people uh, fear losses more than they desire gains in mm -hmm. investment markets. That's why they tend to be risk averse. But then we have this enormous attempt to manipulate behavior through central planning and dis the distortion of risk. One, through the pricing of government bonds by suppressing the price, suppressing interest rates. And then to, you know, if you can't earn money on your savings and you can't earn money on bonds, in fact, if bonds are negative yielding, then you get into the situation we've had really for the last 18 months, which is people buying aggressive stocks and momentum stocks. But, but we still do have this issue of safety of, of demographically with 78, 73 million baby boomers, they would naturally be at the point in their financial life where being more prudent about risk would be the rational thing to do. Mm -hmm. But yet that doesn't seem to be happening because the incentives have been skewed by central planners. And that just sets up for a train wreck. But it's also interesting social, sociologically and politically that this desire for safety is, is uh, there's an implied, there's an implied line of thought that we can eliminate risk. Mm. 
and we can make people, we can save people from themselves by locking them up. And of course, that's a jailing mentality. That's a that's 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 the whole principle behind the panopticon and a prison is that the best way to protect people from themselves is to remove all free choice from life and completely manage what's left of their freedom. And some people seem to prefer that now because they desire safety more than they desire liberty. Yeah. Liberty comes with the risk of failure. And we've created the illusion that risk and failure are things that shouldn't have to happen to people with an infinite amount of money. Well, it, it, and it happens as well in it, not just in the um, uh, in the investment um, realm, but as you said, it happens politically, where where and, and it happens in our discourse as well. And I, I kind of noticed this sort of cropping up now, where um, where any chance, you know, every interview is a gotcha moment. Every every you know, there's no kind of collaborative, cooperative project where. People are allowed to make mistakes. They're allowed to misspeak. They're allowed to, you know, just kind of bumble along and, until we kind of, you know, we, we cooperate on something and we get toward finding a, a truth or discovering something about reality, which helps move the entire human project forward. Now we have this kind of, you know, starkly adversarial uh, framework in which just the entire public discourse is presented so that, uh, you know, people are digging around for off-color jokes that people made 10 years ago or whatever in order to cancel them, which just, it, it leads to the, con the, the total capitulation of, or the total breakdown of civil discourse. And so then we, we, we're, we're never able to, to kind of move the project on where we're, you know, sticking swords in each other's backs all the time. Yeah. And, you know, there's, I think there's the, there's the Adam Smith explanation that the, the great virtue of, uh, the free enterprise system uh, that produces civilization is that the cooperation isn't by design and it isn't organized. It's uh, organic and, and grassroots. And from that, you get civilization mm. and you get a material improvement in our living conditions and you get win-win outcomes without intentionality. But we're not in that era. We're, we're getting um, in game theory you know, tit for tat is when you can either reward or punish the person for their behavior. And the more you punish, then the less, you know, the less, the fewer rewards are available for everyone. That's win-lose. And that dominates our politics. It dominates, mm. it even dominates in the corporate boardroom as well, where, you know, the interests of the CEOs and the insiders uh, are on, in the short term are put ahead of the, the long-term interests of the company. And, you know, the Austrian economists would describe that as a, abandoning the principle of restraint. Mm -hmm. That restraint is the, you know, the accumulation of capital, the willingness to delay consumption, planning for a rainy day, setting aside a reserve and when for when bad things happen. And, We've abandoned all that, and now we punish people who we disagree with. And that, you know, we'll see what happens. You know, cyclically, it's it's not difficult to predict what should happen economically. We should we should have a crash. Hmm. Yeah, I was just rereading. <laughs> Almost embarrassed to admit this, but I was just rereading the other day 
Marx and Engels manifesto because I'd forgotten just quite how terrible it was. And I wanted to go back and look at the actual text and think, did they really say that? But it's interesting how oppositional that that whole structure and framework is. I mean, you talk about win-win uh, deals in order to, you know, in, in, in order to advance the collective project. Um, their entire framework is set up as, you know, the the history of hitherto society is a, is, a, is a history of class struggle. It's the oppressor and the oppressed, the slave and the master, the owners of the means of the production and the, you know, the, the proletariats. It's, and so everything is, it, the, the entire framework is set up so that people view their potential uh, cooperators or, you know, collaborators as, as enemies. And it's not hard to see why when people adopt a kind of neo-Marxist attitude that people would look at somebody, let's say the guy down the street who has a bigger house or a yacht or whatever, and thinks, oh, they have that because I don't. Uh, you, you know, it's a, it's a zero-sum kind of, kind of mentality, which means that's why you have guillotines out the front of Bezos's house. That's why you have movements like the other 99%. It's not championing the 1% saying, hey, like they're moving everything along and, and maybe we can all kind of get behind that and raise the bar for everybody. It's anything anybody else has, they have that because they've somehow denied it to me. And it's, just, mm -hmm. it's an essentially slavish kind of mentality. Uh, and we know where that ends. <laughs> we know where Marx and, and, and Engels' ideas got us in the last century. Yeah, the, the, the forced confiscation of private property and the liquidation of human life, you know, the the materialism, it's interesting because uh, Adam Smith's version, neoclassical economics, is somewhat materialist as well. But Marxism is clearly materialistic, mm. and it defines prosperity not in human terms, but in, in physical terms. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you contrast that with the, uh, the, you know, this would be up Anya's alley, the Aristotelian idea that what we're really concerned with, what free societies do better than any other society, and what the free enterprise system mm -hmm. does better than any other economic way of allocating resources is it allows for the flourishing of human potential at the individual level. So we're not talking about, you know, 30 million unemployed or 2.5 million people who've been unemployed for more than 27 weeks. We're talking about individual lives, dreams, and hopes. Uh, and, you know, when you aggregate those, then it becomes a statistic, but you know, the whole principle behind, uh, a free enterprise system with limited government, low taxes and sound money, is that it allows people to become who they, who they want to become. And th that's why it's important. You know, the, the, the Marxist view that they're genuinely concerned with the misery of the working class is fine, but then they, you know, it, in every case, it's always ended up with the liquidation or the incarceration or the murdering people who disagree politically mm. and uh, <clears throat> that's i hope that that's not what's happening in the united states right now but the arguments being made by a lot of people are based in in that marxist view that wealth is limited and if you can't do what george bush said if you can't make the pie higher <laughs> then, <laughs> then, you, then you have to take from the people who whose gains are ill-gotten and didn't deserve it so i hope we're, yeah. you know but it does feel like that's that's where the conversation is right now yeah it um <clears throat> i i 
noted uh, in in the text, I had underlined in pencil a bunch of the bunch of the uh, relevant passages. But he, Marx was quite the Hegelian, and you know went through the idea of you know the the kind of thesis antithesis and then synthesis, and then the synthesis becomes the new thesis, et cetera, et cetera. But it it reminded me of that i that um, that idea that you know tough times make for make for strong men, and then strong men build a society that leads to easy times and then easy times brings breeds soft men and i th i think probably we're maybe at the we, you know we've had this living high on the hog this time of plenty uh for a long time now built on the backs of some you know really hard struggle and enterprise uh for the last sort of century or so and you know now we have at the top of this time of plenty we have it seems to be some you know the whole sort of snowflake generation idea uh, going forward where we're embracing, we're, we're forgetting about the lessons uh, that we learned, whether or not it's through, uh, you know, malinvestments or, uh, you know, falling off our bicycle without a helmet or whatever it happens to be. We're forgetting the, the lessons that we learned during hard times and, uh, and we're setting ourselves up for a kind of monumental failure. I hope I'm very very miscalculating about that. <laughs> very wrong about that. <laughs> well, it's it's again. There's an analog financially is that that people don't really learn from the past, even if they can read about it. They learn from direct experience, mm. and you know, nothing. Teaching moments in financial markets are when you lose money, or you get stopped out of a position, or your options contract expires worthless, or or if you're an institutional manager, you you have to return your money to the clients because you can't beat the S&P. So in that sense, at least from a financial point of view, it's a lot more objective about uh, the lessons of history. So if, mm -hmm. if you don't, if you buy stocks when they're expensive, then you're probably going to struggle to make money for the next 10 years. If you buy them when they're cheap, then you'll probably be okay for the next 10 years. Uh, so at least in financial markets, there's a little bit more urgency to learn those lessons. But yeah, I don't think people... People just forgot. And there's a, you know, in America anyway, I think part of America is ahistorical anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're more concerned about the future than the past. And that's generally been um, a good quality. But now we're, we're not really concerned about the future because we don't save, we don't invest, we don't plan. Companies aren't run for the long term, they're run for the quarter. So that, that's the opposite now is our attention span is so short politically and financially that we make really, really poor decisions. And I think buying stocks right now would, would fit into that category. It'd be a really, really poor decision. Mm. <clears throat> it's, uh, it's funny you bring up the, the optimistic nature of looking further out on the horizon vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, we've been talking about the trade of the decade, of course. And that is kind of an intellectual exercise that is inherently optimistic. I think I spoke with Chris Mayer about this last week and uh, it, it's that way for a couple of reasons. First of all, you're assuming you're going to be around in 10 years, which is an, it's just a fundamentally optimistic uh, frame of mind to operate in and probably not a bad one. And then two, you're, you're, you're predicting that there's still going to be, uh, you know, civil society at the end of 10 years, uh, and then you're going to be involved in it and that we would, we would somehow have emerged from whatever our present malaise is, whether it's uh, you know, we're, we're in a post-vaccine world or we've, you know, we've worked out how to, how to price in, um, you know, the risk of a virus or, you know, we've, we've kind of adapted around uh, these things, but uh, maybe we can save the, 
trade of the decade stuff for the future. But I like that as kind of an optimistic. Yeah, that's a really good point too, because you know that's that's going to go into our discussion at the end of the year about how we have uh, our asset allocation strategy set up, because the it's quite possible that there is a vaccine that becomes widely available and cheap, and becomes uh, you know the panacea to this own goal of of locking things down which politicians just refuse to back off of from now for other reasons. But if that were to happen, uh, and if it were compulsory or mandatory or free or whatever, then you'd have a narrative suddenly for a huge rebound Mm. globally, huge recovery and travel. Airlines wouldn't need billions of dollars. Hotels would fill up. Restaurants could operate at capacity. Uh, And so, then all of a sudden, you know, the whole, the whole script flips. If that happens, mm. it is something you need to, uh, to think about because, you know, that, that could be a huge rip to the upside, but also it could be a huge rip to inflation, which is the thing we've been discussing privately is at what point does 2% inflation become four or 5% inflation. So Stanley Druckenmiller recently said he thought that that was realistic in the next two to five years that, it would overshoot mm. and uh, you know, that has big implications for people depending on where, where their money's at as well. So lots to think about right now. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe we'll, we'll leave it there for, for today and, uh, and catch up again next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bonner Private Research Podcast. You can find more conversations like this in the members only section of our website at bonnerprivateresearch.com. If you would like to contact us, please address compliments and complaints alike to podcast at bonaprivateresearch.com. We look forward to hearing from you either way. Until next week.